Welcome back to the Vine Church podcast. Today we are continuing our sermon series, Building Back Better, exploring the book of Haggai. If you haven't already, you can find us on YouTube at the Vine Church Odium and Church Crookham, and would love to have you join us over there. Let's open God's Word. So today we're in Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 to 9. So that's Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 to 9. And this is what it says. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst, fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Amazing. So the work has now begun. The rebuild is underway. The people of Israel have listened to the prophet Haggai. They have picked up their tools. The first stones have been laid. And yet, it's just not as good as it once was. The old temple was amazing. It was covered in gold. It had white stones perfectly cut. People would be in awe of our temple as they came into Jerusalem. But this new one is no better than a cottage, says the people. When the people who had seen the splendor of this old temple saw the new building project, their zeal evaporated. And now as we stand in that same position, building back our lives, building back our church, God's temple presence, this is ever going to be the danger for us, that we look at the project before us and our zeal evaporates. And it's because we are a glory days people. What do I mean by that? What I mean is this, humans are obsessed with reflecting on the past as though the glory days lie behind us as though there was once a golden age. It was always better back before this, whatever this that might be that happened. You never know what you have until you lose it. It's amazing how we can uh, forget about some of the most unpleasant things about people that we haven't seen in a long time. We seem to only remember the good things. You know, kids come home from school and say, oh, I hate school. And then you go into the world of work and you say, oh, to be at school again. Sometimes this is completely legitimate. I'm not knocking reflection and appreciation, but I am highlighting that we are a glory days people. The glory days are ever behind us. When it comes to church, perhaps we worry about the state of Christianity in our country. 
Perhaps the influence of our church in our town isn't what it once was. Or even perhaps we worry about our church. We look back to when everything was better. Those were the days. Perhaps it's not even that far back that we look. Maybe just before lockdown when life was lovely and comfortable. But it's not like that anymore. The glory days are over. This is a post-Christian country. Now it's funny because this isn't unique to our generation. It's not even unique to our culture. It, I, I read quite a lot of books from people who are now dead. And recently something that I've been noticed as I do this is that they always seem to think the same thing as us. Oh, for those days in the past, these modern days are full of woe. Even the periods of time that we kind of consider to be full of life in the church, when perhaps we might call this a Christian country, even then the authors in these periods are writing as though the glory days have passed. But go back even further than that, and as we saw, it's what Haggai's audience are doing too. The glory days are behind. Now this new temple, it's not even a shadow of its former glory. It's as nothing in our eyes. In Ezra, we read that when the people saw the new temple being constructed, the people wept because it was nothing like the former. The glory days are over. This is the anticipation that it's never going to be, never going to be as good as it once was. What kind of effect does this have on our calling? If the anticipation is that it will never be as good as it once was, that's exactly how much we'll expect. It is as nothing in our eyes. See, lack of vision freezes our heart in complacency and it keeps our hands from picking up our tools. But then, into this air of despondency, God speaks to his people. To each one, to Joshua, to Zerubbabel, to all the people, he says two words. The two words that need to be heard. Be strong. That's what they needed and it's what we needed, what we need too, strength. The project in front can only be taken up if you have strength, mental, physical strength to realise the task ahead. Notice this, that what the people need isn't wealth, it isn't more money, it isn't better skilled workers, it's strength. More than resources, they need the resolve to do the task that God has given to do. But then God says something so precious, something which the call to be strong means nothing without, something that we each need to hear. Work, for I am with you. Wow. God is present amongst us. God has come alongside us. This is the reason that God can command us to be strong, not because we have the power in us, but because he is with us. Whilst the world's message is, you've got the power, find it in yourself. God's message is, you don't have the power, but be strong because I am here with you. And so what's the result of that? If God is here with us, then what does he say to us in light of that truth? Work. See, I think this completely flips our expectations of what would happen if, if God declares his presence like this. On, on the one hand, we might expect a sense of now we can fall into inactivity. 
Because God's presence is here now, and so we can go back to the idleness that we wanted when our zeal had evaporated. God's here. He can do it for us. The project seemed too big for us, and now God has come. We can put our feet up and enjoy him finishing it off for us. On the other hand, perhaps we see it the other way around, as though God is saying something along the lines of, work so that I may be with you. Maybe we might implicitly have this idea that God comes in response to us doing all the necessary work. We do as much as we can, and then God meets us halfway. And so the task before us is to knuckle down, get to it, and then God can come. It's really easy to have this view in our prayer life, for instance, that prayer is what we turn to when we've got to the end of what we can do. So that's the point that we ask God to be involved. Perhaps this factors into the way we view salvation. I need to be a good person so that I can be savable so that God may save me. A kind of a pull-up-your-socks version of the Christian message. And it's so easy to buy into this kind of thinking. And yet it's the opposite of what God says. Work because I am with you. Work in light of the fact that I am with you. Let my being with you empower you in your work. Because if God is present with us in this project, then we have an absolute guarantee that it will be completed. God's mere presence is the determining factor in the success of this task. When he acts, things are done. And so God's presence is like an electric shock of anticipation, because if God is here, this is going to be done. And so he says to us, I am with you. And so, get to work. It doesn't cause idleness, quite the opposite, it causes anticipation. Do you know what anticipation actually means? We often use it in our culture to kind of mean waiting with expectation. But that's actually not what it means. It's actually, it comes from a Latin root, and the, and the root Latin word is best translated as to act in advance of an expected outcome. Let me say that again. To anticipate is to act in advance of an expected outcome. Let me illustrate what this looks like in action. In 2009, I was 12, and for Christmas, my brother was going to give me his iPod Touch, nowadays a piece of technology from a bygone era, a first-generation iPod Touch. And I couldn't wait for the day that I had that iPod in my hands. I used to imagine doing really mundane things, uh, but with it, as though it would be so cool. Like I imagined getting my iPod out to check the time and just thinking, oh, that's going to be so cool when I can do that. I couldn't wait. With all the patience of a 12-year-old, I would plead with my brother to give it to me early, but he was insistent that it was a Christmas present and no earlier. And so, in my excitement for having this device, I spent so many evenings on my computer trawling through the app store and downloading apps and games that I would want to have on my iPod. I also worked out which films and which music I would have. I made a playlist. And so before I even got this iPod, I had a whole library of games and apps and all kinds of media ready to go 
All I needed to do was get the thing, plug it into my computer, and there it would be, ready to use. That's what anticipation looks like, to act in advance of an expected outcome. My excitement, or perhaps impatience, for what I would have manifested itself in positive action in preparation for it. That's what we mean by anticipation. Just let the, let the force of that word sit on you as we're reading about this project that God is calling his people to do. If God is present among us, then the outcome isn't just expected, it's guaranteed. And so this call to work is to act in advance of an expected and assured outcome. The command to work is a command to anticipate. Because anticipation energizes the heart and motivates the hands. Be motivated to move by it. Don't let God saying, I am here with you, be an excuse to say, well, that's good. It means I can sit back. You know, how many of us have heard phrases like, Jesus, take the wheel, or let go and let God. These kind of pithy phrases we throw around to make it sound like we can get as far as we get, and then we need God to arrive and do the rest. No, 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 do the opposite. God has promised to be here. So do the opposite of letting go. Hold tighter. Straighten your shoulders and get to it because God is here with us. The faithful God who keeps covenant, the one whose spirit is in our midst, the one who has saved our ancestors from bondage in Egypt and will take us out of bondage into ultimate freedom as well. This is no time for lethargy. This is time for action. God is among us. Now is the time for anticipation. But it's all well and good talking about working in light of an expected outcome. But what actually is this expected outcome? What are we working towards? What is the goal? See, what's gone wrong for Haggai's audience is that their expectation is they're just building the old temple back again. Build it back the way it was. Let's get back to when we knew it was good. Because this is how we normally think. If what we once had was good, let's get back there. And I think this is related with our obsession with the glory days. That's what we need to get back to. Think about how we read stories like the Garden of Eden, for instance. You know, Adam and Eve had it good, and then they fell, and through Jesus, we can get back to how it was in the garden, a walk around with God in the cool of the day. Is that what we think? Is, doesn't that sound wonderful? But here's the thing. We don't want to go back to the garden. That's not our aim. Their communion with God, their relationship with God, had no eternal security. They had a probation to do, a task. They had the ability to fall. They hadn't received the fullness of life and goodness yet. I don't want to go back to that. I want to be with God with that probation fulfilled by Jesus. I want to have a secure standing with God that won't fade and I can't do anything to ruin it. We don't want to go back. We want to go forward. That's our challenge as Glory Days people, to not see them behind us, but to see them ahead. 
Look at what God says through Haggai. Let's look at verse 7. I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. In verse 9, he says, The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. God is calling them to more than they knew before. What does that look like? What are we expecting as the fulfillment of these promises then? What am I getting so excited about as I preach this? Well, Haggai tells us in verse 6, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. This might seem like a confusing verse. So what is God actually saying to us here? Well, the benefit of this verse is that it is quoted and preached about in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. And so my job as a preacher is made much easier because we have a commentary inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now, in in Hebrews, the main focus of the author writing in the first century is that there is a temple currently standing in Jerusalem, a physical stone temple. And lots of believers who have come to know Christ have become a bit confused because they realize that when Jesus comes, everything changes. There's no more sacrifices to be made. There's no more atonement. There's no more worshiping according to the old way. But there's a pressure on them to conform, to go back and worship in that way. And so throughout the book of Hebrews, the author is comparing what we have now in Jesus with the shadows that we had before Jesus came, including the stone building that we call the temple, in comparison with the true temple that we now know called Jesus. In fact, Hebrews tells us that the old temple is going to come down, that God is going to destroy it, which he did indeed do in the year 70 AD through the Romans. And in Hebrews chapter 12, he gives us a brilliant comparison. He says, you have not come to the old order of things, you have come to the new order of things. The old order was fragile, the new order is eternal. The old temple could be attacked, destroyed, and will crumble. But the new temple is not from the earth. It cannot be attacked, nor destroyed, nor even shaken. Like the old one was about to be when Hebrews was being written. And so in chapter 12, he quotes Haggai, chapter 2, verse 6. Yet once more, says the Lord of hosts, in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth the seas and the dry lands. And he quotes it and he says, all the way back then, God had said, this is what I'll do, yet once more. And then in verse 27, he says this, this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. In other words, God is saying, yet again, God will destroy this physical temple, like he had done 70 years before Haggai had started writing, so that the true one may be more fully revealed. Now, this this is where it gets really, really exciting. Follow with me into verse 7. 
Haggai says this, I will, or God says this through Haggai rather, I will shake the nations so that all the treasures of the nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory. All the way back then, Haggai is telling his audience this, this house that you are building isn't it. This isn't even a shadow of the things that God is going to do with this temple. What you're building right now, that's the miniature model that the architect brings in at the beginning of a project. God's plan is way bigger than this temple. It's way bigger than this country. It's way bigger than this people group. This temple, oh, let me tell you about him, not it. This new temple is God in the flesh come to earth. This new temple is God drawing all peoples to himself, coming to build his kingdom on earth. He is coming to draw the treasures of all nations in. It's no wonder that one of the first things that Jesus does when he gets here is receive gifts from distant foreigners called the Magi. That right there is the new temple receiving treasures from the nations. His new temple project started right away. And this new temple, he brings in people from all nations, cultures and backgrounds, and he draws them all to the table. And he doesn't say, now that you're here, leave your background behind. No, he draws in the treasure. He baptizes it as his own for his glory. And this treasure, this temple rather, isn't marked by an ethnicity. It isn't centered around a people group. It's centered around a person. And who is this person? He's the one who created all peoples and all tribes and nations. And now he gathers them all in to himself. And how does he do this? See, the old temple was a building that people had to come to. If the nations were going to flood into the temple, then they would have to move geographically into a stone building in Jerusalem. But this new temple isn't limited by physical structures. They don't come to it. It's like an expanding tent. It covers them. Because God intends to fill this earth with his kingdom. Not a stone structure in the Middle East, but a globe-shaped temple. And what will God do with this world-covering temple? In verse 9, he says, And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. He will build his temple over this earth and draw all nations in. You want something to anticipate? How's that for you? You need something to know that the glory days aren't behind us? How's that for you? How's this? We don't live in a post-Christian country. We live in a pre-Christian country because God isn't done building yet. Are you prepared to get involved? Do you feel that anticipation energizing your heart and motivating your hands? Well, it starts right here. As Professor Jordan Peterson says, if you want to change the world, start by tidying your room. If you want to see the kingdom grow, it starts with us. This is our calling this morning. To be a people marked by anticipation. To be the people who are looking beyond what they can see, but are totally marked out by the promise that God is here with us. And so what do we do in light of that truth? Pick up your tools. But don't try and rebuild the house that existed before. The Lord has plans way bigger than that 
We don't want back. We want better. We want to see the treasures of all nations come in. We haven't seen the glory days yet. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for those words that the girls read in the psalm earlier. Let the nations be glad. Let the earth know the salvation of our Lord. Lord, we thank you that you are building your kingdom over this earth. That every tribe, tongue, nation and people group may know that you are the Lord. Lord, stir our anticipation this morning. Stir us to act in advance of an expected outcome. Let our hearts be energised and our hands motivated by your promises, God. Shape us this morning. Amen.